Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Hey, good morning, guys. Let's go, let's go Luke chapter 3. We've been walking through the book of Luke together. We started a few weeks ago walking through this narrative about Jesus. Uh, it's been about 18 years now from where Brad left off last week of Jesus in the temple as a young boy to where we're going to start now in this, in this kind of time frame. We have a huge jump into the story of Jesus. Uh, but I'm excited for today. So the church that I grew up in was a small town, little Baptist church. And uh, we had pews, and on the back of every pew were these little, these little envelopes that, that you would put your offering in. Now, and t- if, if this makes sense as I, as I talk about this, I want you to nod your head like, yes. You guys know the little offering envelopes, right? And then on those envelopes were a series of boxes. And what you were supposed to do when you got your offering envelope and put your check in there is you were supposed to check the appropriate boxes. And so the first box would say, attended church check. And that was pretty easy. I was there, right? Not that I gave any money, but I was there. I just, I just got an envelope and checked everything and then didn't put any money in. Um, next box would say, I read my Sunday school lesson. And, no, never checked that one. Uh, next box, read my Bible. Okay, check. <laughs> right? And then on, on the list would go down and the last one was always shared my faith and no one ever checked that one. Right? But the that was all for, probably from a great place. But what got communicated to me, and maybe many of you, is the Christian life was about checking the appropriate boxes. And to be a good Christian, the goal was to check as many of those as you can. And when God would look at me on Sunday morning and everyone else, He would look at how many boxes we checked and then decide whether or not He liked us. The problem, I always came up wanting. And maybe you did too. And that idea, that understanding, that culture is exactly where we're going to enter into the story today uh, in, the, in the book of Luke. And it's going to center, the story today is going to center around a guy named John. His name's John the Baptist. We've introduced him a few weeks ago. And uh, he's this pre uh, this person that's supposed to usher in this, this time for the Messiah to come. Let's go, let's go to it. Luke chapter 3. We're actually going to start in verse 2 because if you read verse 1 and you've been around before, you know I cannot pronounce half of the names in verse 1, so I'm not going to try. So I don't want to embarrass myself on Easter. So we're just going to jump to verse 2. During the priesthood of Annas and Sapphias, the Word of God came to John, son of Zachariah in the wilderness. So Luke introduces us to, again, this guy named John. We, we remember him as a baby. Now we're introduced to this guy, this grown man named John. Now, we have to know, let's set the stage. These are dark times in the life of Israel. They are occupied by Rome. We've talked about that. Rome is brutal. They are oppressed by Rome. Spiritually, there is a zeal for God. Like they are a serious religious community, a Jewish religious community that is serious for God. There's a great zeal. However, that zeal was without knowledge. Any of you ever been zealous for something but not have the knowledge surrounding that zeal? That's very dangerous. 
So they are very zealous for God. However, they had shifted and that zeal was without knowledge. And so at this time, what's happening, the Jewish religious leaders were all about power. So you had one of those leaders, his name was the high priest, and he was getting rich. And here's how he was getting rich. He would approve only certain animals for sacrifice that could be allowed for sacrifice in the temple. Guess where you could get those animals? From him. That's called monopoly. And the prices were high. He's getting rich in another way because he would only allow Jewish currency to be used as offerings in the temple. And so if you showed up and you did not have Jewish currency on, you had to get, exchange your currency, guess where you would go? To him. And the exchange rates were awful. That's why if you remember when Jesus comes in the temple and flips over the table, he says, my house has become, become a den of robbers, right? So this, this, this religious system is a mess and the Jewish religious leaders have the people trapped. And there is a list of commandments, a list of rules, a list of check boxes that is so long, it was unbelievable. Like, for example, on the Sabbath day, which was their Saturday, there were laws on how many steps you could take, how much work you could do in feeding your animals. I mean, there were laws around everything. And there was a weight of laws or legalism that just crushed the people. And then there were all these religious activities that you had to do along with those laws. So they would have all these ceremonial washings that you had to do. And if you did not do any of those, you were unclean. Remember we told you when we introduced the birth of Jesus, the shepherds were considered unclean because they could not do all of the ceremonial things that were needed. And so the system that we are around, that John the Baptist shows up on, that Jesus is getting ready to show up into is a system of this legalistic weight of rules and ceremonial washings and religious practices. And John is going to step into this environment and he is going to cause a scene. He is going to step in in a dramatic and polarizing way. Let's look at it. John or Luke chapter 3, the second part of verse 2. So the word of God came to John in the wilderness and he went into all that region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, so Luke's going to quote the Old Testament here, and here's the quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain, every high or every hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now again, if you were here a few weeks ago, you know this. Luke is quoting this Old Testament passage to let us know that John is that promised person that is going to come before the Messiah arrives. That's why he quotes that. He's making it clear John is that person that's been promised for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then that Jesus is the one that's promised to come after him. And so we're introduced to this guy named John, and he lives a separate life from the corrupt religious scene. He lives in the wilderness. If you remember about John, he is born to elderly parents, and it's believed that his parents by now are, are dead and gone. Probably when, he, when they died, he went out to live in the wilderness uh, on his own. And as I studied this idea of the wilderness here, think Death Valley. Like this is unforgiving territory. It's hostile territory. Matthew 
in this book kind of gives us a little bit more idea about this guy named John the Baptist. He says, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Like, this guy's an anomaly. And, and, I, and when I read the Bible, I'm always, and maybe this is bad of me, I'm always putting in modern characters to try to help me understand who this people, and the, the best character I could come up with, and the millennials aren't going to know who this is, Crocodile Dundee. You guys remember that? This just like guy that comes out of the bush, he's a little bit witty, he's a little bit funny, he's just got an edge to him, and people are like, wow, that guy, like, that's John the Baptist. The guy, can you picture it? Camel hair with a leather belt, and his food is locusts and honey. The guy looked like a, he had to look like a madman. And so picture this in your mind of this, this guy, John the Baptist, showing up out of the wilderness, kind of from the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden drawing this huge crowd, and you're going to see he is going to stir up the snakes. Let's go to verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones up children from Abraham, for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, that's harsh. Can, can you picture this? Crazy guy in camel hair. Probably he's uns you know, not shaved, hair going everywhere, and he's screaming, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come? Like the, the tree's going to be cut down. Like he would appear like one of those people that are in downtown Springfield on Friday and Saturday nights. You've ever been down there? The you know what I mean, the religious people screaming. At That's what it appears to be. But we've got to know what's going on here. And as a matter of fact, Matthew will kind of give us an idea of who he is talking to when he says these harsh things. Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 says this, that, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. So let's understand this. Who is John the Baptist talking to when he kind of goes off on this? You brood of vipers, who warned you to free from the wrath? The, the tree's going to be cut down. Who's he talking to? The religious elite. And if you were a Jew living in this day, your heroes were the religious elite. They had their stuff together. They knew the Bible. They knew the commandments. They, were, they told you what you were supposed to do, what you were not supposed to do. They were up on a pedestal. They were almost even with God. That's how much you esteemed them. And it's to these people that John starts saying these things. He's challenging the religious elite. I've always wished that television and movie cameras were invented back in the Bible days. I'd love to see this clip. 
Can you imagine this? A big, big crowd of people coming around. They're getting baptized. They're listening to John teach. He's, he's telling them about this new person that's coming, this new uh, way of living that's coming. And all the, these religious leaders come around. And if you're, if you're the Jew there, you're like, okay, here comes the religious leaders. They're going to weigh on this. As they get near, John's like, you brood of vipers. I'd love to see the clip of that. And John is not going to be very popular, as you can guess, with this crowd. Neither is Jesus. Here's what Jesus will say about him one time. This is, um, this is from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what is John the Baptist and Jesus, what is their problem with these religious leaders? Here's their problem. There's a couple problems. Number one, they've created this whole system where they just put all these rules and this weight on the people and the people were burdened. They were heavy burdened. But the problem with these Pharisees and these religious leaders is their focus was completely on the outside. What am I doing? I go to the temple, I give my money, I do these ceremonial washings, I do all of these things. That was their focus. And they did those things so that everyone else would say, now that guy, he's got his stuff together. And what you'll find as we go through, look, over and over and over again, Jesus is concerned with the heart, not the external actions. The Pharisees were only concerned with what they look on the outside, but Jesus is going to tell them, look, listen guys, your insides are like tombs where the dead people are, like your insides are broken and empty, and all you are is concerned with the outside. That's why Jesus will say things like this, you've heard it said, don't murder outside, but I say, if you hate someone in your heart, you've done the same thing inside. See, Jesus is all about taking this, these unclear uh, teaching to say all that, all that matters is what's on the outside. And he's going to say, no, 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 that doesn't really matter. What matters is the inside because everything you do comes from the inside. So Jesus is all about laying the, leveling the playing field. And so imagine this, if you are these Jewish leaders and there's all these people that you kind of have underneath your control and your power, and all of a sudden this religious guy is telling you, you're a snake. And he has just leveled the playing field and said, listen, Pharisees and Sadducees, all these, quote, sinners that you look down on, you're just the same as them. Because it's not the outside, it's the inside. See, the belief of Judaism at this time they could gain was, was this, that they could gain access to God by means of their own religious efforts. Go to church, ceremonial washings, give money. External actions would get me to God. And John's going to say, listen, that belief system, the axe is at the tree. That belief system is going to so God had given them these commandments right some good command like don't kill one another like that's a good commandment right don't steal that's a good thing 
Like commandments weren't bad. The commandments were good. But what God intended for is that they would believe and trust Him and then do those commandments. The Pharisees switched the order and said, if we do all of these things and we'll add about 500 more things on top of that, then God will accept us and love us. And John was there to tell them that their works of righteousness, their external works, were inadequate. They were not enough to save. Because the belief was, God loves me because I am good. Or, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And it's the American belief too. Like here's what most people, many people in America believe about the gospel. Here's you. And this is your life. And there's two destinations you can end up. Heaven and hell. And heaven is where good people go. And heaven is where grandma is going to be. Right? And if you want to be a good person and go where grandma wants to go, you need to believe in Jesus and be a good person and you can go to heaven when you die. But there's another place. And that place is scary and there's fire and these eternal punishment and Hitler's there and cats and all these other awful things. And you'll go there. And so here's the belief, and this is what I believed. And a lot of you are going to relate to this. This is you. These are the destinations. And so you need to believe in Jesus that he died on the cross. And then here's the deal. Depending, so this is good up here, and this is bad. Depending on what side of this line you live for the rest of your life will depend on where you go. So if you believe in Jesus and try to do a bunch of good things, you'll go to heaven when you die. If you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus and do bad things, you go to hell when you die. That's what many of you grew up believing and maybe some of you still understand about the gospel. And that's the idea in Judaism here that John is going to blow up. See, it's religion. And when I say religion, here's what I mean when I say the word, you'll hear me say it a lot if you come to Hill City. Religion is the idea that I must do something to get to God. That's religion. Choose your religion. Religion is based on God is up there, I'm here, and I must do something to get to that God. So here's the idea of religion. Religion says, if I action... Put an action word in there. Go to church. Pray. Say a prayer to ask Jesus in my heart when I'm eight years old. Give money. If I action, I am identity. I am accepted. I am loved. I am valued. That's what religion says. I must do something. If I go to church, 
I will be loved by God. If I try not to cuss very much, God will accept me. That is what religion is based on. And it's in that environment that John is going to come in and blow it up. And my goal, as long as I get to stand up on this stage at Hill City Church, is to blow up the same thing. Because I grew up in this. And maybe that's not what was said. I don't want to say people that taught me, that's what I heard. And many of you grew up understanding or thinking this. In 2005, uh, researchers at uh, the University of North Carolina did a study of, of American teenagers, which how many of you were teenagers in 2005? Raise your hand. Come on. Yep, a lot of our young families. Yeah. So 2005, they did a study of teenagers and, and kind of unpacked what their faith was growing up in these youth groups, these megachurch mega youth groups. What, what was the faith? What did they believe? And the, and the phrase that they termed, they coined, was this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. And that's what they said that most kind of young people believe. Now let me unpack this a little bit. Here's, so here's what this idea is. Number one, there's a God that exists and created the world and watches over human life. Like they believe in God, right? That's that deism idea. That God's central desire for, for people is to be good, moral, and happy. Moralistic, right? How, you could be a deacon in any good old Baptist church if you just came with a suit and didn't cuss very much and had everything together. You could be, right? Moral, good moral people, happy. That God is not involved in anyone's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. So I kind of live my life until I get in a, a traffic wreck and I'm not going to go, oh, God, please help me here. And last, the idea that good people go to heaven when they die and bad people go to hell. We watch, I, I, I decided not to show it uh, this, this, uh, today, but we watched a, a clip on YouTube of, of these people that went out and did an interview with a bunch of college students and asked them, will you go to heaven when you die? And the predominant answer was yes, and they would say, okay, why? Because I'm a good person. So religion is this idea, if you read your Bible, if you go to church, if you open the door for elderly people, if you're a good person, a good moral person, you'll go to heaven when you die. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has accomplished all of God's requirements for you by his death and resurrection. And this is freely given to you and simply received by faith. That's the gospel. It is totally opposite of religion. See, religion is based on I. If I blank. The gospel is Jesus did. And I simply believe and receive that by faith. So religion says, if I action, go to church, I am identity, I'm accepted. Here's the gospel. I am identity, accepted. I'm loved. I'm forgiven. 
So I action. Read my Bible. Go to church. Insert your action. See, it's a reversal. And I never understood this, so I'm 24, 25 years old, and I've been leading a youth group. And I've been teaching them all the things, the list, the checkbox, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And that is empty. And I'm like 24, 25, 26, somewhere in there. And all of a sudden, this makes sense to me. And it starts to flip. And the result is this peace that came over me like I've never experienced before. And many of you, just like these Jews in these days, are living in this idea. If I can just do something better, something else, I will finally be accepted by God. If I can just get my act together, if I can just stop this, stop this, if I can just do something, then I'll be accepted by God. And the gospel says, no, you're accepted by grace through faith. Like you didn't deserve any of it. God didn't love you when you started getting your act together. He found you in your mess, in your brokenness, in your addiction, in your marriage troubles. He found you at your worst revealed himself to you, you believed, he changed your identity, and then actions start to come. Hear me, guys, atheism is not the enemy of Christianity. Religion is. It is. And John the Baptist is going off here, and he's not talking to the sinner and the harlot and the addicted person and the person is still sleeping off Saturday night. That wasn't who he was talking to. He was talking to religious leaders that thought they could get themselves to God by their really good behavior. That's who he was talking to. And we see this religion belief all through our society of people that call themselves Christians. I came across this quote, and I won't tell you who said it. It's a famous person you all know. Here's the quote. I like to be good. I don't like to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I do a lot of things that are, I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that's bad. I live a very different life than people would think. I have a very great relationship with God. Like that's not a fake quote. That's a real quote. That's the belief of America. And I'm, I'm not getting after the people that believe that. I'm getting after the people like me that have taught that. Like some of you are just doing what you've been taught. Try to be good. Go to church and maybe the big guy, if I do enough things, will let me off the hook. The gospel says, listen, salvation is freely given. It's received by grace through faith, that when you believe in Jesus for your salvation, that at that moment, the idea is that you are justified. That's the, that's the theological term. Justified or justification is the idea. Think of a courtroom and the judge hits the gavel and says, not guilty. That's the idea of justification. That by faith, when you believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, God declared you justified and righteous. Justification. That's what the gospel says. You're saved by grace through faith. Now, so 
they're like, well, sweet, now I can do whatever I want. Right? Because that's, that's what uh, argument, well, if I'm accepted and loved, then so I live it up, baby. Well, here's the problem. The gospel keeps going. John, or, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 8, look what he says. He says, John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So John introduces to this idea of repentance. Okay? Repentance is the fruit of faith. We say this again. So you receive Jesus by faith. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. When you receive that, you are justified. You are declared by God righteous. What is the result? What is the fruit? How do I know that I've been justified? This idea of repentance. Repentance is the fruit of faith. What's repentance? Repentance simply means a change in direction. Repentance says, I'm going this way towards trying to be a good moral person and get my way to God. Repentance is, no, I'm going to turn around and go this way, looking at Jesus and living towards the way Jesus wants me to live. That's repentance. So the gospel is, receive this free gift by faith, and then the fruit that you have seen that, the evidence that you've seen that is this idea of repentance. Turning from myself and turning to God. Repentance follows true faith. Another word the Bible talks about to explain this idea of repentance is sanctification. The big word simply means God forming me into the person he wants me to be that looks more like Jesus. Sanctification. You can't separate justification, being declared righteous by God, from sanctification. They come together. So here we go. The gospel says, I am forgiven justification, declared righteous, so I am becoming more like Christ, sanctification. And things should change. If because re repentance is the fruit of faith, we uh, with we have, with our staff once a month we do this little little thing when we get together on Tuesday morning we kind of take three or four hours because many of our staff can't come in here and, and do this they're all working they have a bunch of responsibilities so we just try once a month just to be together and sit together and learn and kind of center the word and uh, we invited an older older man to come in and talk with us this week um, and this older man who we've all known as this very quiet, humble, patient, kind, generous man starts sharing his story of about 15 years ago being a bitter, angry, insecure man. And we're all like, what? I didn't, we, we didn't know, none of us knew him back then. Like, no way. And here's what he told us. He grew up in the same idea. I've got to do something to get to God. He knew it was never enough. But whenever it switched for him, when he understood that God loves him and God accepts him how he are, he said, listen, things started to change. And the man that he is now is not the man that he was 15 years ago. That's sanctification. It's a process. It's a growing process. And we can't separate the two. So John is trying to Break down this religious system that says you got to be better. He's saying, no, someone's coming, Jesus. you got to believe in him. 
You'll be justified. And then the fruit of that is repentance, that you're going to be sanctified. You're going to become like Christ. But he's trying to make sure, and my goal is to make sure we understand that this idea of religion is a complete lie that most of you have bought into. The quote I use all the time, and I don't even remember who said it, and now everyone just thinks I made it up, which is fine. Um, I read it a long time ago. Here's a quote. Most Christians are guilt-ridden and insecure. Is that you? Most people that claim to be Christians are guilt-ridden and insecure. Why? They believe their standing with God is based on their most recent religious performance. So many of you walked in here today feeling guilty and insecure. Why? You know what you thought about yesterday. You know what you did Thursday night. And so because you know you, the real you, and you believe in a God that knows the real you, your automatic response is, well, that God's angry with me. That God's disappointed. He's frustrated. And so you're insecure. Most Christians are guilt-ridden and insecure because they believe their staying with God is based on their most recent religious performance where the gospel is all about freedom and joy. Matt, come up here. I want a quick little interview of... of um, well, actually, Matt plays drum in our band. Played this morning. Played most weeks. I want you to share a little bit of your story here, kind of unpacking this for us. And his videos online, maybe you watch the video, uh, you can get through it to our website also. Um, talk about what you believed growing up. Because you're a good youth group kid and went to church every Sunday. Talk about what you believed growing up. I, I just believe the, the typical gospel story of Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm going to heaven. That's about it. Okay. So you have this understanding, right, of, of Jesus. It's not like you grew up an atheist. No. Grew up a church kid. I believe this. What was the disconnect, though? What, you grew up, I believe in Jesus, but really, who were you trusting in for your standing with God? That was totally me. 100%. What, what did that look like? You can. You can just take the marker if you want, buddy. Just, I'll walk off the stage. You can go right. for it if you want. Here. So basically, my life kind of looked like this. I would come to church, and I had done some good things. So I got good grades. I cursed. I, you know, prayed this week and drank. And then just, I mean, this was my entire, yeah. my entire life. And it was exhausting, absolutely exhausting. Um, it left me angry, bitter, resentful, because everything that I had done was based on me, even though in my head I knew there was absolutely nothing that I could do to get to heaven. So this is the idea. Many of you understand, like, your justification... You believed in Jesus, died on the cross, I'm saved. But your sanctification, you felt it was all up to how hard you worked in your willpower. And you were never good enough, were you? No, I felt like I had to do something. It's like I knew better. But for some reason, I was, you know, I, I, honestly, I mean, obviously I was terrified to go to hell. So anytime I was down here, I was on the path to hell. Anytime I was up here, I knew I was going to heaven, at least for that moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. It's, it and, and again, let me reinforce, this is a guy that 
grew up in church, played in Christian rock bands, went to right, did everything. Um, You came to me, I think it's summertime, and I think the word you used is like, I'm finished. Or I'm I'm tired. Tired. Yeah. And this weight of I'm never good enough. And so I was like, well, let's, let's start working through some. We have this little book we do. It's a little green book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And it kind of walks through kind of understanding this. And as you started to walk through that, you and me and another guy, what started to change here? What, how did that mindset, mindset start to shift? I know the focus had been on me. And I can't say that these aha moments that I had when we had our green book discussions, but I believe the Holy Spirit started showing me the gospel in the way that it's supposed to be seen. Matt, you can't do anything. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus and what he did for us. And as a result, this huge weight fell off me and I began to see the gospel in a totally different way. Um, not that I arrived or anything like that. It was just that that moment where I knew for the first time that my salvation was secure and there was nothing that I could do to earn it. I didn't have to perform anymore. And it freed me to become joyful, naturally joyful. I didn't have to fake it anymore. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it bled into my marriage. I think I'm getting better. I hope I'm getting better as a husband <laughs> and as a father um, at work. Um, just treating people with empathy. Um, yeah. This whole idea, I'll pack them, pack this another time. This word identity right here, that's a heart. It never looks like a heart. It usually looks like a butt when I draw it. But um, That's a good try. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Everything you do comes from your identity. So I believe I'm never good enough. Guess how I live? Like someone that's never good enough. Fair? I remember we drew this out. I think it was like week three or four, I kind of drew this out. I remember you threw your pin down, you leaned back in your chair and you're like, yep, you just defined my Christianity right there. And then so over the process of some weeks, starting to flip this. It's not if I blank, then I'm accepted. It's no, I'm accepted. Now let's live. And out of that, you're learning. It's not like, oh, fix me forever, right? You're Definitely. learning the joy of following Christ in freedom instead of guilt. It's changing everything. Absolutely. I've had multiple people just, because we all known him for every place out here every week, say things to me like, Petrie's a whole new man than the guilty kind of person he was a few months ago. Thanks for sharing your Thank story. You. Thanks. Um, so John was preaching to people who were ready to walk away from this heavy religious weight system. Like there must have been some people in that crowd that thought, like, finally, don't have to be good enough. Finally, I don't have to get it all together for God to accept me. Jesus will say this later on. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. All who are trying to work to get themselves. Come to me, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You want rest? Like you done trying? You done trying to finally measure up? Okay, well this year, I'll, this year I'll finally do better. I'll finally stop. Jesus would say like, come to me all you who are heavy and weary. Let me teach you your identity. Loved, valued, chosen, accepted. And now, in repentance, live out that identity. And let's make you into the person that I want you to be. See, repentance, love you, thought's a bad word. I repent when I do something really bad. Repentance is a good word. It's saying, let me turn away from the sin and brokenness and weight of religion and let me walk in joy and freedom of the commands that are good. And so churches are filled in America of guilty, heavy, weighty people that don't understand their identity. They're trying to base God's acceptance of them on how they lived this past week or two. And it's empty. And the result is often this. After a while, it's like, I'm done. I'm giving up. And John's message was a message of hope to those under the weight of a heavy religion. See, Easter, it's all about selling, celebrating the resurrection. And here's the cool thing of the resurrection. We don't celebrate you resurrecting. We celebrate Jesus resurrecting. You ever thought about that? We sang songs. Your name was not on that slide this morning. We sang. It wasn't. And the, the message of the resurrection is Jesus saying, listen guys, I have completed it. It is finished. Period. So let's quit trying to add on. Well, but, but, I got it. It is finished. Period. Believe. And now let's live out that belief. That's the message of the resurrection. So what do we do? The response to the gospel is faith and repentance. Faith. I believe that Jesus died on my behalf, resurrected on my behalf, and that if I'm going to get to God, it comes through Him. I believe that. Faith. And hear me, faith isn't just intellectual belief. Faith is resting in. To stop my working. To quit trying to earn it. That's faith. Faith. And the second, repentance. Now that I believe, let me turn away from this life of living how I want to live and this wake of destruction that comes from that. And let me turn back to the way Jesus wants me to live. Faith and repentance. So Brad told you in his introduction, we have, um, we could care less how big our thing here is on Easter. We really don't care. Because our goal is not to get you in some church service and have you, and they have like a cool experience. Our goal is to teach you the gospel. Because when you realize this, when this clicks with you, things change in remarkable ways. 